This episode of Earl Grey is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. You're listening to Trek FM. T.O. Grey Hot. Welcome to another cup of Earl Grey, Trek FM's dedicated podcast to the next generation. I'm your host, Justin Ozer. Amy is away this week, but join with me today is Richard Marquez. Richard, how are you doing today? I'm a little sore, <laughs> tired, but I am good to go. <laughs> Low talking TNG. <laughs> okay, excellent. So we do have a couple of special guests today, but first we wanted to read some feedback from the Babel Conference. Uh, in this case, it was episode 235 where we talked about Star Trek Las Vegas, which is coming up. I think when this one drops, it'll be starting in about a week. Uh, so Greg Mullenby said, great episode. I enjoy the convention every year, but I actually don't stay at the Rio. I have a timeshare on Tropicana Street that I stay at and then take Lyft or their shuttle to the Rio. For breakfast, I typically have cereal or oatmeal and it helps keep the cost down. I also bring snacks and plenty of water and other beverages to keep me going throughout the day. So thanks for your comment, Greg, with some more tips for STLV. Must be nice to have a little timeshare there. <laughs> I think most of us just stay in a hotel. but If you vacation a lot, yeah, I, I can see that being very useful. <laughs> or at least yeah. to Vegas, that is. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So thanks, Greg. Awesome. Well, uh, Andrea uh, Boot said, this uh, This was really useful. I'll keep uh, keep these tips in mind when I attend. From the sounds yeah, of it, it sounds like she's coming. <laughs> well, you know, I think there was some back and forth and maybe she was coming next year. She says, oh, okay. when I attend. So, yeah, there, there were go. some people like, oh, can't come this year, but maybe next year. So maybe we'll see you guys next year. But again, you know, if you are coming this year and... You haven't reached out to Amy for our big Thursday get together. You still have some time to do that when this episode drops about a week. So great. And uh, Heather Barker says, just an FYI that no ticket levels include photo ops. The treat card with the higher tiers gets you two autograph photos out of a grab bag in the vendor's room. Only gold gets the free autographs, but nothing for photo ops. So yeah, sorry if there was, uh, gave some incorrect information there listeners, but Heather Barker is like the STLV expert and keeping us honest on that. You know, I actually saw that after we were done and forgot to tell you guys uh, <laughs> when I read it. I was like, oh, no, that's probably bad information. Well, and they'll figure it out. So, yeah. Um, sorry about that, listeners, but um, no yeah. freebies. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, there's like all these levels and all these things, but appreciate it. gets very confusing, that's for sure. Yeah, it, it can be. Like even with me with my gold package, I'm like, what does it include again? What do I get? So... Yeah, it's it's like you have to have a list on um, in your pocket or something like that. I'm like, oh no, access denied. <laughs> <laughs> All 
Okay, so thanks listeners for your feedback on the Babel Conference, and we're going on to the episode. So today we have two special guests. They're the hosts of the Strange New Worlds, a Science and Star Trek podcast, Mike Wong and Elise Cutts. Welcome to Earl Grey. Thanks. It's great to be aboard. Yeah, it's great to be here. Great to have you guys here. You know, I think I discovered your podcast. Uh, I guess it was maybe, Mike, when you were on the edge with uh, Brenda Shamatala, and I was like, ooh, this sounds like an interesting podcast. So I went back and listened to them. I've listened to every episode. I really love it. I mean, there's there's a description in the title. It's a science and Star Trek podcast. But maybe you guys can tell us a little bit more about the kinds of things you cover on the podcast and kind of what motivated you to start it. Definitely. So this podcast started last summer, uh, shortly after the first real substantial trailer for Star Trek Discovery came out. And I remember watching that trailer, getting really excited about it, uh, especially about the two binary protoplanetary disks information, which was just a stunning visual image. And I was listening to other Star Trek podcasts, too, at the time, and Everybody was picking apart the trailer and talking about the characters and the uniforms and the visual effects, but nobody was talking about the science, which is like what I really wanted to be talking about. And so I said, why don't I start a science and Star Trek podcast? And I was lucky enough that here at Caltech, I have a bunch of friends who are not just very well versed in science, but also in Star Trek. And so I asked Elise to join me as the co-host for Strange New Worlds, and we kicked things off talking about that image in in the Star Trek Discovery um, trailer and then just broadened our scope to everything else in Star Trek, anything that has uh, a scientific tie-in. And the main point of the podcast is to bring people who are very interested in science fiction and love Star Trek and uh, try to expose them to a little bit more of the real factual science behind these episodes. Great. And and also, I think you have different specialties. So Mike, for you, it's planetary sciences. And Elise, am I right in remembering that it's geology that's your focus? Yes. Yeah, so I'm a geobiologist. So I study how okay. life and the Earth have interacted over time and continue to interact to change and influence each other, which is kind of a new interdisciplinary field. Um, but yeah, Mike and I's specialties kind of fall in very different, but interacting um, places. Well, I think it's great because, you know, you get some some different perspectives there. And, you know, listeners, if you haven't already checked it out, definitely recommend you check out Strange New Worlds, Science and Star Trek podcast. What I also wanted to do before we get into kind of the main focus of the episode is maybe you can tell us about some of your history with Star Trek and maybe the next generation in particular. So, Mike, if you want to go first on that. Oh, definitely. So uh, I have always loved Star Trek. I barely remember a time before Star Trek was in my life because uh, this is Earl Grey, the Star Trek The Next Generation podcast. I think it's probably appropriate to mention that my very first Star Trek episode was an episode of TNG. Uh, it was Masks. Um, and <laughs> I know an that's, episode to start I with. I <laughs> know. Uh, <laughs> it's not usually touted as TNG's finest hour, or, or Star Trek's finest hour, for that matter. But um, but I was I was about four at the time, and I remember uh, curling up on the couch with my dad, and he was just watching TNG, and I was so captivated by Data in that episode. I mean, uh, it, basically in masks, Data is inhabited by uh, different personalities from an ancient uh, artifact, and uh, he's he's playing out all of these different personalities and changing personalities 
um, just like that. And for a person who's never even seen an Android before, I was just like, wow, what is going on to this guy? Um, and I was just so captivated by Brent Spiner's performance. And I know that Spiner has been on the record saying that he wished he had more time to prepare for all of those different characters that he had to perform in that episode. But I just, um, you know, it, it was it was good enough for me at the time, just being exposed to Star Trek for the for the very first time. And I was hooked by by this strange android creature who was bouncing back and forth between uh, different characters. And um, I just asked my dad, what is this? Um, what is this about? And he was like, oh, this is Star Trek. And it's about a group of people exploring outer space. And ever since then, I've sort of made that my life mission as well, to explore the boundaries of knowledge related to outer space and the cosmos and trying to answer questions like, are we alone in the universe? Um, are there other life forms out there nearby, far away? How would we get in contact with them? How would we find them? And, uh, and so that has really guided my career path so far. Excellent. Yeah, and I know Masks is an episode that a lot of people don't like. I, I like it personally. I think Brent Spiner does an amazing job. And I think it's really something that that was your first experience and you were, it didn't turn you off. You're like, wow, this is pretty interesting. This is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, Amy's right now, it, as she's listening, she's uh, jumping up and down with excitement, right? <laughs> yeah, because she loves Masks too. <laughs> she loves it. <laughs> so, so Elise, tell us about your history with Star Trek and maybe The Next Generation in particular. Yeah, so I did not grow up on Star Trek. I am of the generation that was robbed of a serial Star Trek series through my childhood and early adulthood. Um, but I did get the 2009 reboots. And I went and watched that movie. My mom grew up on the original series. And so she was very excited to see that they were reviving something that she loved. So she took me to the movie with her, kind of expecting me to think it was stale. But they did such a great job with it. And I came out wanting to go again and again and again. And she was... Uh, perhaps unlucky enough to make the decision to take me again and again and again because I just got absolutely hooked and there was nothing available on our television at home except for Netflix um, Netflix Star Trek episodes for the next couple of months as I just marathoned through every series that I could get my hands on except I have never gotten through Deep Space Nine I have gotten through TNG and oh shame gotten, yeah, shame yeah I know I know um, but I part of the it. problem is because I do keep going back to Next Generation and keep watching mm. it instead of going on to the new stuff because I did get hooked on the original series from the reboots because I went directly there but mm -hmm. TNG was really when it became good I guess like properly mm. good and so I just keep going back to it because the characters are so great and I love um, Patrick Stewart as the captain and it's just it's awesome so yeah I guess TNG was my real serious Star Trek watching experience and it's what I like to go back and rewatch more than the original mm. series now even though the original series is sort of the first proper Star Trek that got me going that's excellent. Yeah. And for like, I've said it on this podcast before, but I had exposure to, to Star Trek, like in, in my childhood and in the nineties and a little bit after that, but it was for me also the 2009 movie that really got my attention. Like, wow, I want to go back and, and see what I've missed. I actually went back to TNG and not to, <laughs> to not the to original the series. Yeah, the original series. But, and part of that, I think was because it was my, one of my wife's favorite series and she had it's been a big so Star good. Trek fan. Yeah, but it's it's great. And of course, we talk about it on here every week. And of course, I'm joking with you about Part of it for me is Q. It's just yeah. so perfect as as this sort of foil to Picard. I just have to go back and at least watch the the Q episodes when I, I hit a Star Trek bug. 
So okay. it's great. <laughs> Excellent. So yeah, I think so Mike and Elise, so today what you were interested in talking about related to the episode The Chase, and listeners might remember there's a six season episode where basically there's an archaeologist, Professor Galen, that comes aboard uh, the Enterprise to see Picard, who and you know Picard had thought once about being an archaeologist. This was his mentor, and he's made some discoveries, and they have to kind of piece things together over the course of the episode. And by the end of the episode, they find that there was this uh, kind of proto-humanoid species billions of years ago that had seeded all of these different planets and different parts of the galaxy, and that kind of explains why a lot of species you see in Star Trek have similarities in in how they look. And we'll also be talking about a concept called panspermia, which we will talk about and and uh, tell you what that is. But I wanted to actually start out with kind of initial thoughts on the episode. So so Richard, the chase, like what do you think about the episode or what's it like when you rewatch it or has it changed over time? Oh, has it changed over time? <laughs> <laughs> um from okay, so I I actually rewatched it today, um, just to get, keep my mind fresh on it, and um, I I mean I I think I watched it like everyone else, and honestly I wrote it off, um, because at that time they were uh, there was a lot of conversation about well why is everyone a bipedal species or why does everyone have two legs and the only difference is is that their faces the uh, is the facial makeup and all that kind of stuff. And how I saw the episode was that that was their way of answering that question because of the criticism in the fans. I, when I when I watched, yeah, like I said, when I watched it initially, it wasn't really a fan favorite. I mean, it was like one of those standalone episodes that I really that really don't get a callback. I really yeah, they don't really they did. talk about it again. Like, right. It's supposed to be this really momentous thing, and the next week it's like, well, whatever. And, and, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, 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 it kind of if they did, um, you know, if it. If the whole search was the, uh, the whole purpose of the search was to, you know, bring peace and prosperity and everything, then Star Trek would would have ended at that episode. <laughs> so, um, but I just think I, I mean, it's just one of those standalone stories that don't get a callback. That really, to me, is not really important because no one we never hear about it ever again. Okay, so interesting. That's how I saw it. So. All right. So, Elise, your thoughts on the chase as an episode. So I think that it's sad that it was left sort of, as you say, as this standalone episode that doesn't get a callback because it's an idea that this, this idea of racial tension is something that comes up again and again and again in Star Trek. And having this sort of gambit in play that all of these species are related to each other would be something that you could bring into that environment of tension and play off of, well, the Romulans seem to sort of accept it a little more than the Klingons and Kardashians, but they're still not going to change their ways. They might admit, hey, you're like us, but that doesn't mean you are us. You could have these more sophisticated conversations bringing in this idea. Um, I do think it's important that they explained sort of why everything in the universe uses DNA, uh, which is which is something interesting. But just as an episode, I thought it was cool to see Picard struggle with himself over these sort of two conceptions of his identity that he has as like uh, an archaeologist, a, a humanitarian sort of person who's interested in cultures and helping people understand each other. And then his other responsibilities as a starship captain, where he has this crew that he needs to take care of. He has these missions and duties to the Federation. He has to go attend these conferences that he gets mad about in the episode. 
And seeing him sort of struggle with the idea that he could have chosen a different path, I think is an important character moment for Picard. And that we all have something that we sort of wish we had done differently, right? We all think back and there was maybe a decision to go into one field or to take up a certain uh, pursuit that you could have made a different decision about and it would have changed your life. You would have been in a completely different place. And whether or not it's a better place or a worse place or just a different place is something that we all have to deal with. And showing that Picard had to make that kind of choice too. He wasn't just, you know, set up to be a starship captain from the beginning. I think that was important, even beyond the the mm-hmm. broader implications with the panspermia stuff. I loved how excited Captain Picard got about archaeology. That was so he cute. Was it was so, so cute. nerdy. <laughs> he was very... Patrick like Stewart sells that boy. really well, doesn't he? He, he absolutely does and to kick off this episode with that to see this other side of Picard you know when Professor Galen shows him the Curlin artifact and and he just gets so so into trying to decipher exactly what this is as if it were some kind of oral examination for his professor uh, and you could really see uh, how how his eyes lit up and uh, how he started smiling more. You know, Picard is normally such a reserved captain, very focused on doing the right thing and accomplishing the mission goals. And we never really get to see him indulge his heart, his his side passions. And uh, it was it was one of those rare moments in TNG where we got to see uh, a little bit of that from Jean Luc. Yeah, that that's a good point. I mean, and he's so enthusiastic about it, and he doesn't hide it. He's not. He doesn't care what people think or if they're watching him. He's just like, oh, I love this. <laughs> right, and, and Riker's yeah. right there, and Riker knows nothing about archaeology or the specific uh, civilization, and Picard has to keep translating for him, like, this is what I see, this is what it means. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I, I, I think I like The Chase a lot. I think it's a very interesting episode. It is a shame that it wasn't followed up on, but I, I do like that they kind of address this thing like why is it that all of these i mean we know the real world reason right they, <laughs> the makeup has to be simple right. but <laughs> yeah money and, and all that kind of stuff yeah right and like marina Serta <laughs> says like we'll have more non-humanoid characters when there are more non-humanoid actors you know like it's it's limited by who you have available right, right. um but but I, I like it as an episode i think it's 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 quite interesting and i always enjoy it so okay so mike and elise one of the things you wanted to, to focus on was this idea of panspermia and how it relates to what goes on in the episode. So first, did one of you just want to kind of define for us or tell us what panspermia actually is? Yeah, definitely. So in the fields of astrobiology, um, we're very focused on trying to understand the origin, the distribution, and the evolution of life throughout the cosmos. One of the big overarching themes of astrobiology is how do you go from a non-living planet to a living one? And there are lots of origins of life theories that we could talk about. And if you're interested in learning more, you can go back and listen to episode 32 of Strange New Worlds, which is called Q's Little Pond of Goo. And we talk about um, the scene from All Good Things in that episode. Um, But there's also ideas that you can get life started on one world and then transfer it from that planet to another lifeless planet where that life form could then uh, make make itself, establish itself on that planet and pro- proliferate there. And this idea uh, of transferring life between planets is called panspermia. And this is a really important concept if you consider that the conditions for the origin of life are far different and are perhaps much rarer 
than the conditions to allow life to persist on a planet. Uh, in other words, the conditions for planetary habitability. And so, for instance, you may uh, discover that the conditions to start life from non-living processes is extremely rare. And so you might only start life in these very small pockets across the universe, but there's plenty of quote-unquote habitable real estate everywhere else in the universe, and how are you going to get all of those habitable planets inhabited? Panspermia is one way that you can do this. And so there's two major classes of panspermia. One is called directed panspermia, which is what we're dealing with here in the Next Generation episode, The Chase, where some entity that has achieved consciousness and intelligence is going to purposely seed planets with the building blocks for life or life itself. And there is non-directed panspermia, or what is often called in the scientific literature lithopanspermia, litho just meaning rock, in which uh, it's, it's not directed by some kind of intelligence. Life originates on one planet, gets knocked off of that planet by uh, uh, impact, and then travels through space and then lands on another planet and seeds that planet with life. You know, now that you're talking about it in the different categories, so would it be correct that what's happening with the Genesis Project in Star Trek is panspermia? Like they're actually trying to put life onto this planet that doesn't have life? Yeah, I I was thinking about that as well. And I think it falls in a very sort of gray zone um, because in general, when you talk about panspermia, you're talking about putting the seeds for life, the building blocks for life, or perhaps mm. a very primitive life form itself onto a planet, the Genesis device takes it to a whole different level where <laughs> you're not bringing anything really new to the planet. You're just reorganizing that planet itself uh, at the molecular level to have life and to be able to sustain life. So I would say that's a that's a completely different beast. <laughs> yeah, because pretty immediately it's f more fully formed life instead of, you know, here's some building blocks and that makes it easier for it to develop, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. So so I guess in the in the context of of this episode, the the chase where they find out that there's there were these life forms billions of years ago that were that were seeding planets. Uh, I mean, I guess a, a a question. There's kind of two parts to it. So, I guess one part is like from a from a storytelling standpoint like as an explanation of, of these similarities, not, not thinking even about the science, does, does this seem to, to, to work? Do you watch it and you're like, oh yeah, I mean, if there was some entity billions of years ago, maybe they could do that, that kind of thing and assuming that they had warp travel, right? It's hard because the validity of it as a storytelling device really hinges on the validity mm. of it as a scientific idea. Um, and so I guess if you accept the science that they propose, which I'm sure we'll discuss after this question, if you yeah. accept their science just flat as they say it, it is a good way to try to explain why there's so much similarity between these like humanoid, same-sized organisms in the Star Trek universe. One thing that does fall short, though, even if you do accept their science, is just the timeline of evolution. So they sort of imply in the progenitor's speech that um, they expected all of these species to exist simultaneously with each other. And so you have these Klingons, Romulans, humans, Cardassians, all of these species, humanoid species, existing in the same very momentary flash of time in the grand mm -hmm. scheme of the universe. And so it's hard to predict. Like, for instance, on Earth, life existed for many billions of years before you even got an animal or 
or even just a cell that was more complex than a bacterium or an archaean. And it's hard to predict when those big evolutionary transitions will happen. And, and even once you have animals, we had to go through two huge mass extinctions to sort of reset the whole equilibrium that the planet got into to allow mammals to end up being the dominant thing that arose. So it's kind of amazing, I guess, even if I accept the science that they were able to, to put seeds down to make humanoids eventually, being able to time it so that they would all exist at the same time and work together to find the message, that's where I think the storytelling aspect breaks down just a little bit, even if we accept the science. Unless they were advanced enough to be able to seed like millions of different planets and there would have to be like yeah, maybe at that, least a few around. Yeah, that would be around. one way to get around it. But there's this <laughs> diagram that they show and it, yeah. they're, they're only showing maybe like 20 or 30 different DNA sequences that in their little diagrams. And That's they show true. this diagram of the planets that they seeded and it's in a DNA double helix shape and there are only a, maybe like 15 or 20 nodes on that diagram that they showed. So maybe it's an incomplete mm. diagram that we were shown. Um, but they did sort of imply that it wasn't it, it wasn't like they were finding these sequences in every species that they were checking for in their database either. They had to go hunt for these right. specific planets. And, and to complete it, they had to find all the strands, which, yeah, it seemed like it was maybe 15 or 20 or something like yeah. that. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's but, true. But it, does, it is a good attempt at trying to explain this sort of very important idea that there is similarity between the species in the entire Star Trek universe. That makes sense. Actually, before we go into the like the specific science of it and what might be more realistic, uh, Richard, I, I mean, you gave some of your thoughts about the the episode, but like j just thinking about the episode itself and not whether it was followed up again later. I mean, does it work like as a storytelling device for you in the episode that you know the end of this is that there's this progenitor species, or did you wish there was something else that was going on? Uh, I will say this, um, Mike at least gave me a lot to think about. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, I was like, oh, that's, that's a good point. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It, it's just, I, I, you're just taking it in. Okay. I'm just taking it in. And I, I, I mean, it, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it, going with this, uh, is it term theory? What, what is it? Um, sort of an idea at this point. I, okay. So idea. So this, this kind of idea it's very interesting um, to explain, obviously, why we're all similar, and I could I could see it working um, for obviously storytelling purposes. That is, um, but at least wow, um, I didn't even think about uh, the rate of uh, evolution and all that. So I was like, that's wow. Yeah, evolution's <laughs> kind of funny in that it only works when it needs to work in a way. So we, the right. mammals existed mm -hmm. concurrently with the, concurrently with dinosaurs, but they didn't ever evolve towards the kind of complexity and diversity that we see today in mammals because all of those ecological niches that mammals fill today, like big land predators and um, living in trees and, and just being huge and being complex, these kinds of roles were played in the ecosystem by dinosaurs. And so it took getting rid of that equilibrium with this huge mm -hmm. mass extinction for mm -hmm. us to even have the chance to exist, for evolution to even push towards us. There has to be some push, some opening to draw forward towards this complexity. Um, and and so even if you did seed this, this planet with all of the information necessary to make a human, the the sequence of events to get there might not ever occur. Like the, It didn't sound mm -hmm. like the progenitor race was taking into account asteroids coming and hitting the planets or, <laughs> or mass catastrophes or huge natural events like volcanic eruptions that can change evolution. 
yeah. yeah. Some, it's a lot some, to think about. <laughs> it is a lot to think about, yeah. Something else on the storytelling side um, that may transition us into uh, talking about more science is that, um, you know, I was a little bit disappointed that I uh, that I felt like the episode was trying to say something that was uh, a, a, often a misconception about the way that evolution works. And in the progenitor's um, speech at the, at the end of the episode, um, she's standing there and saying that, look at you all, you have a part of each other in you. That's great. That's true. Uh, but then she says, you are the end product of our seeding <laughs> of life on all of these worlds. And I was just like, that. that's not exactly true because saying you are the end product gives a warped, a very misguided perception of uh, evolution as being goal-oriented, which it really isn't. Mm -hmm. There is no end product to evolution. We are all the current end products of evolution right now, but we are ourselves, our species, going to evolve into something else given, given you know, a couple more million years. And uh, who knows what that will be. So, um, mm -hmm. well, well, we do know what we're going to be. We're going to be salamanders. As, as <laughs> that that would out. take a really incredible <laughs> walk back down the, the evolutionary <laughs> evolutionary family tree and then back up a different branch. So I, I'd be impressed if that happens. Be cool. Yeah, though. that that I'm would be a whole other thing world. to talk about de-evolution in Star Trek. But <laughs> um, you know, like you you bring up an interesting point, uh, Mike, about yeah, evolution not necessarily being goal oriented unless the species billions of years ago was advanced enough that they could actually manipulate things in a way that it is toward that goal right. in some way. But I, I don't know. That's that's a lot more than they could ever get into yeah. in the episode. Yeah. Um, I think we actually tried to think about this, <laughs> I think, right? We tried to come up for a way with a way for this to work. Yeah. So, well, I mean, we, we did think about uh, if we grew up, if humanity grew up in, into a spacefaring civilization, and instead of finding a populated galaxy, like in Star Trek, we instead discovered that we were more like the progenitor race, and that we were alone in the cosmos, and we wanted to leave behind a message for future life forms. Elise and I started bouncing back, uh, back and forth some ideas for what we would actually do um, to leave that message there. And uh, given the large timescales uh, on which evolution plays out, and given the other pressures, uh, the environmental pressures that sort of shape the way that evolution goes on a certain world, um, not just the starting DNA that you're, you're given, but what actually selects for that DNA to make it morph into different species, given uh, eons and eons, you would need to really control the factors um, on the planet throughout billion-year timescales. Um, mm -hmm. Or have an advanced time machine to be go be able to go ahead to different times and be like, oh, <laughs> this led to this, and this led cool, we're yeah. on the right track. We <laughs> had this idea to leave a satellite in orbit that could like change things in real time and cause natural disasters oh. or introduce... you know actually i was just yeah. thinking of that but like i was thinking in the terms of a duck blind <laughs> uh, oh yeah <laughs> yeah uh, but one problem that the episode just does run into in the idea so leaving a message in dna would be completely possible and there are structures that we still have in our genomes today and most life all life on earth have in their genomes that have been conserved throughout evolutionary time for as far back as we can see, because they're important. They're coding for things like how your cells process energy, which is something that every cell needs to do. So if it mutates too much and it loses function, then you just die and you don't get to pass on that mutation. So these things tend to stay very conserved through time. 
So if you coded a message, like some kind of binary code into the into the base pair sequences of that DNA, it could persist pretty long, pretty, through a pretty long time in evolutionary history. But implying that you could leave the code for something like a four-limbed body plan or um, hair even, something as simple <laughs> as hair, into a bacterium or a proto, like some kind of pre-bacterium life form is just, and expect it to hold on to that DNA long enough for it to actually become useful mm-hmm. is pretty ludicrous because bacteria are really, really small. And and these simple life forms are under a lot of really insane pressure to be efficient. And holding on to that much DNA, and it's a ton compared to what they keep on themselves for operating, is very evolutionarily unfavorable. And so if you were one of these bacteria that had this progenitor DNA stuck in you to carry for the next two billion years until you can evolve four-limb body plans, mm-hmm. you're just going to drop that DNA so that you can survive better, or you'll just die, and then it will go away. Just expecting that kind of huge planning for, for something as complex as a, a hominid to be put into something like a bacterium and hold on to it for that long. There is some path dependency to evolution and that it has to modify previously existing structures, but not enough that you could put... You could just seed something like simple cellular machinery into into a bacterium and expect it to produce the same sort of humanoid end result every time. More stuff to think about. Well, I guess, so I think we've got starting to get a little bit into the the science of the episode and things that may or may not make sense. But like other thoughts that you have about the actual science of what they're proposing. Sure. Um, so, let's see, I think at least definitely uh, did a good job talking about how there are some very highly conserved genes throughout all of biology on Earth, the core genes that are related to these irreplaceable parts in our own cells, many of which are related to the way that our cells gain energy. Um, And you can think about how our our early ancestors would have had completely different body plans, shapes, sizes uh, than us, but we all need the same constraints on energy. We all need to eat some kind of food. We all need to breathe some kind of uh, what we would call oxidant or electron acceptor for for that food to give its electrons away, for that life form to power itself. So the, the main mechanisms for gaining energy uh, is, is really the message that we carry within us in our genes today. And uh, evolution has guided us to the point where now we are very good at mass producing food and eating and breathing and doing all sorts of great things. Um, and in the future, whatever we turn into may be even better. But, uh, but it's that, that the real fundamental core that we've conserved throughout all of evolutionary history. And so I think this episode does a really good job on expanding on the very true scientific idea that all of life on Earth has a common thread, that we all are from a common ancestor. We're all related. And it extends this in Star Trek to the interplanetary level. And uh, when the Romulan captain realizes at the very end of the chase that he and Picard actually share more in common than he had first thought, that's the same kind of realization that you or I could have because the miracles of modern biological research have really shown us that we are all extraordinarily similar on the genetic level and that our superficial differences in skin color, body size, dispositions, they're all minuscule compared to the vast quantities of sameness across all human beings, indeed across all living things on earth. And I think that 
that's a real core message, uh, a real game changer and a paradigm for how you understand our place in our ecosystem in real life here just on Earth so far, but in the Star Trek context within the entire galaxy. And so that's, that's really the message that I take away from the chase. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up that conversation that Picard has with the Romulan commander where saying, oh, we have more in common than, than I thought. And, you know, maybe that something can come of that in the future. Because, right, it, it does make me think of, you know, we found that the difference between all of the people on Earth is really small, like like on a a kind of cosmetic level people can say oh that person looks different or acts different or whatever but at a very basic like genetic level we're very very similar and yet i think it's either that a lot of people don't know that or realize it or they're willing to dismiss it like in the way that you see in the episode where the Klingons and the Cardassians are like Ugh, i don't really have anything in common with them they're still my enemy you know so like it it, it does bring up a question like when there is this kind of scientific discovery that's like we are actually very very similar and yet people dismiss that like wh- why does that kind of thing happen is it just that like in, in our case on earth like that not a lot of people realize that or they just don't want to even think about it or what are your thoughts on that in a lot of cases the groups we identify with have a lot less to do with what's in our DNA than how we've been raised, what our cultural experiences are, what our values are, and these are things that we're taught and we pick up through life. They're not things that are coded into us. So, um mm. even if like say, I mean most Americans are not native american, right? But we all share this kind of new american identity of ha- of this culture that we have that we share. If you went abroad, you would notice that it, it's different than what you're mm-hmm. used to at home. Um, and so you have this set of values that even as different as Americans can be from one another, we have this sort of Americanness that is detached from, in a lot of ways, our ethnic background or whatever. And so, I mean, a Klingon and a Romulan could look at each other and they could say, okay, I admit we share a great, 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 great to the 10 grandparent, um, but I didn't grow up on your planet. You don't know what my life's mm-hmm. like. You don't know my values, my culture. You still think my culture is inferior to yours. In in the same way that somebody on Earth could say, yeah, I get that we all share a common ancestor within a really recent time in geologic history, but you don't know my life. You don't share my religion. You don't have my values. So people are still able to make these distinctions between each other because in a lot of ways, our identities go a lot deeper than just what our bodies are. It's our experiences and our what we've been taught and what we've what we've come to value through our lives. Yeah, that is a really good point because people do, I think you're right, identify more with like a specific culture upbringing than their their genetics because I think that yeah, for a lot of people like if you're in America, you identify as an American before saying I'm human, probably. Yeah. Right? I mean, most because... people if you if you're like if you went up to somebody and asked them that like that terrible question, what are you? I'd be like You'd, you would search for an answer that is different than I'm human probably first. Um, maybe that's right. not the way it should be. But I mean, it would almost be sad if we lost those those individual cultural mm. identities as well, because that diversity is what makes life so interesting so often. And that's another message that Star Trek has is finding value in diversity, like infinite, possi- infinite possibilities and infinite diversity. There's some Vulcan saying that I am butchering right now. <laughs> infinite diversity and infinite combinations. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's another Mm. message in Star Trek, too, is valuing diversity. 
So I guess it's balancing understanding the com commonalities with valuing the differences. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, and also in, in Star Trek, people identify as being part of the Federation, but being human or Vulcan or French, whatever. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I, I was going to move. Uh, go, go ahead. Yeah, I have one more uh, scientific uh, tidbit mm -hmm. that I wanted to share here. Um, so the idea that early on in the universe's evolution, it would be relatively hard to generate life and hence only the progenitor race was around. And then later, four and a half billion years later, you could get a more flourishing galaxy full of humans, Romulans, Klingons, Cardassians. That's actually a very valid scientific point because to build life, you must first build planets with the raw materials to sustain life and the types of elements that constitute our planet and indeed that constitute ourselves were created by previous generations of stars. So you need okay. a certain number of stars to form, undergo fusion, blow themselves to smithereens before you can get the calcium in our bones or in our rocks or the iron that's in our blood or in our planet's core. And so when Carl Sagan said that we're all stardust, that's absolutely true. And maybe when life evolved on the progenitor's homeworld, there just wasn't enough of that stardust around. And now mm. there's plenty. I mean, do, considering that, do you think it's it's possible that as an alternate explanation to what they have in the chase that people might be like similar in in some way because like in in some sense, the conditions that are needed in order to have a certain kind of intelligent life would need to be similar in terms of like the stars or the planetary conditions or things like that, that might naturally kind of independently solve for the same thing by looking a certain way. Is that possible? Yeah. Uh, I mean, definitely the, the makeup, the chemical makeup of the universe has been changing over time. And so people think about, you know, um, for instance, habitable zones around stars as a certain spatial extent um, for which, uh, you can generate liquid water on a planet and then uh, have the possibility of life there. Well, there's also a sort of time extent that you need to think about in terms of habitability. And so very early on in the universe, yeah, you definitely can't generate any sort of life or, and definitely no sorts of intelligence. And then you reach a point in which you have enough of these heavier elements to start creating life. Perhaps in order to create life that generates intelligence, you also need to have a, a certain mixture of other heavy elements that you need to wait for another successive generation of stars to produce. And then eventually, you know, um, there may be too many heavy elements in the cosmos um, for there to be life as we know it today, because um, the the types of elements that we're mainly composed of uh, may simply be depleted by by stars continuing to fuse um, uh, the the quote unquote lighter elements that we are made of into even more heavier ones. Um, so hmm. yeah, there, there's there's definitely that to think about, and usually we don't need to think about that in terms of looking for life because we inhabit this extremely small slice of time compared to the universe's 13.7 billion years um, of, of evolution. But uh, but having a Star Trek episode like The Chase exposes us to thinking about deep time in a way that usually we don't need to think about. Am I correct in thinking that you were just asking about um, whether or not because of the way that the stars exploding and leaving the same sort of elements everywhere works, 
and the way that that might influence where life develops, you would end up as using this as an explanation to all have to have humanoids sort of as an endpoint. Is that what you're yeah, asking? And, about? E- and even like the planetary conditions, maybe yeah. in order to have a certain kind of life, you need to have a certain oxygen, nitrogen atmosphere and certain other elements on the planet and things so like that. That's certainly just... to have complex life, you need to have an, a planet that has a lot of accessible energy. And one really good way to do that is to have a lot of oxygen in the atmosphere because the inside of planets tend to be electron rich and oxygen is really hungry for electrons. And so what life can do is sort of connect these two ends of that planetary battery and just exploit all of the energy that comes through doing that. And so Earth actually for a very long time did not have an oxygen an oxygen atmosphere. And mm-hmm. one of the reasons people think that complex life may have started to evolve when it did is because photosynthesis evolved and the atmosphere filled up with oxygen. And all of a sudden there was this energetic uh, sort of niche to evolve into, this this new source of energy to exploit. And so you could evolve more complex, more energy dependent, but also more energy efficient structures. So you're totally right that planetary evolution can guide actual biological evolution. But to to think that you might end up with, you know, four-armed four-armed monkeys being the this the standard out of mm. that is a little difficult for me to wrap my head around because the earth has okay. been more or less the way that it is now for quite a while. And there have been a lot of different equilibria, sort of ecosystem equilibria that we've hit and which have had really no indication of being especially unstable until they collapsed as the result of some outside in, in, interruption. Um, so I'm not sure that we can use planetary evolution as a justification for having hominids everywhere, but we could definitely use it as a justification for why most of the species in Star Trek tend to breathe oxygen and why most of the species Mm. in Star Trek tend to require water and digest sugars and like carbon-based foods. I think those kind of basic similarities can definitely be explained in the way that you're explaining it for sure. Okay. I was just curious if there was some alternative to this like directed panspermia that's in the episode well who knows maybe the only reason to be smart is because you have an opposable thumb and you've got the machinery to use it so so maybe if you get to a point where there are trees and climbing becomes a a useful (laughs) skill maybe maybe trees are what give you big brains but it's hard to know exactly why we went down the intelligence rabbit hole and it's something that scientists still fight about a lot actually yeah. Wow. I mean, like, there's things that we're talking, about, and and I always think about this when we when we think about the scale of time of like billions of years, like all of the different things that had to happen for us to be here, you know, billions of years after the universe started to have this conversation. There's so many things that have to line up in a certain way, right? Yeah, it's incredible. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Q could have just amazing. like flicked a dust particle ten billion years ago, and then <laughs> you know none of us would be here. <laughs> or maybe that's why we are here. Yeah. Maybe maybe <laughs> Q did it. <laughs> you know, I think a better explanation for why all the, the the species in Star Trek are humanoid is because that's the Q's preferred shape and he wanted some friends to play with. And, <laughs> Ooh, all yeah, right. Maybe the Q collective is responsible or maybe they picked up on where the progenitor race left off. Who knows? But <laughs> there's a lot of ways you could explain it in the Star Trek universe. I could see that. There's but then so many. Explain. Maybe it's the mycelia. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> could be. Could be. Wow. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about a couple of other things. So we've talked about this idea in the chase of, of um, you know, panspermia, whether it's directed or it's, you know, accidental in some way, introducing life onto a lifeless planet. How would we know if, 
the life on earth is here because of some kind of process like that, whether it's directed or it's, you know, by some accident, like, I don't know, an asteroid brings life here from Mars or something like that billions of years ago, that kind of thing. Yeah. So let me first um, explain a scenario that scientists are playing around with right now that might explain how life on Earth could be the product of panspermia. And then maybe mm. Elise can talk about how we would actually determine that. So um, there's this idea that we all come from Mars, actually, that we are all Martians. And um, this is born about because during Earth's earliest epoch, roughly uh, 4 billion years ago, um, Earth was probably a water world, completely encased in this global ocean. You can think of Azadi Prime from Enterprise or the Monean Ocean World from Voyager. And mm -hmm. the problem with a global ocean is that if you're trying to form this very concentrated broth of chemicals in what is called a primordial soup, both in the scientific community and in Star Trek episodes like The Chase, where life can start to take a hold, you're probably too dilute in a broad global ocean. And so you want to start thinking about places that had liquid water, but not quite so much of it. And you turn to our neighbor, Mars. And Mars may have had an early ocean, but it wasn't globally encompassing. And also Mars has, some, has the largest volcanoes in the solar system that definitely would have stuck out uh, out of this ocean. And these volcanoes might have had a very desert-like climate, potentially full of minerals like borate, which are known to stabilize some of the essential building blocks for life. For instance, ribose, which is an essential sugar that makes up the backbone in our genetic material. And so these volcanoes, um, volcanoes we know on Earth, also induce a, a large amount of lightning. And lightning is thought to be key for sparking the creation for more complex organic molecules. And as I said, these uh, on the slopes of these large volcanoes, you'd have a desert-like climate, but every once in a while it would rain. And so you would get these wet dry cycles. And wet dry cycles are very important for forming those first chain links between the building blocks um, of, of life to create more intricate, more impressive, more biologically relevant molecules. And so um, this all could have been happening four billion years ago on Mars. But when we look at Mars today, we see a lifeless cratered world. Uh, but that also gives us a clue because all of these craters were created by impactors. And each one of those impactors, uh, if it was large enough, would have thrown a lot of Mars stuff into space. And it's very easy to escape Mars's gravitational pull because it's a smaller planet than Earth. So it has about 40% of Earth's gravity. And these chunks of rock that were bl blown off of Mars would travel the solar system. And many of them would end up on Earth. Um, so you can do these dynamical calculations, these simulations in a computer tracking orbits of things ejected from Mars, and about 2 to 3% of those rocks will actually end up on Earth. Uh, it doesn't sound like a lot, but over billions of years, trillions of kilograms of rock have actually been traded between our planets. And so uh, it's very possible that a life form originating on Mars could have hitched a ride inside of a rock knocked off of Mars, uh, and found its way to Earth. 
Um, one last uh, part of this story is that, well, as you all know, once you are entering the atmosphere of a terrestrial planet like Earth, you start to heat up, right? And so you might ask, um, are you going to fry upon entry into Earth's atmosphere? And uh, you can actually demonstrate that in the lab, the rocks that we have found from Mars, the meteorites that we have identified to have come from Mars, their interiors did not heat up above about 40 degrees Celsius. Um, and you can even show on a blackboard, um, do a couple of order of magnitude calculations, that the searing effect of a rock falling through Earth's atmosphere shouldn't really uh, boil away any, any life forms more than a few uh, tenths of a centimeter deep into that rock because it all happens mm. so fast. So it's entirely possible that rock-hosted life could actually hitch a ride uh, on a on on an asteroid going between Earth and Mars, and so some people think that it was more likely for life to have originated on Mars and then hitched a ride here and proliferated on Earth, where we have had a stable, uh, habitable planet for much longer than Mars, because Mars has since dried up, lost its atmosphere, lost its water. So that's the scientific idea for panspermia, wow. for us all being Martians, um, and. And I'll turn it over to Elise if, if, you, if you want to talk about how we would actually determine that we all came from Mars. It would be very hard. As, as it stands, we don't know that there are Martians of any kind. So it would be very hard to prove that there is any sort of relationship between us and the Martians. Uh, one thing that would be con conclusive, though, would be if we went to Mars and we found uh, evidence for DNA-based life that shared characteristics with life on Earth that were important, especially given like the time scales lining up. So if you found a kind of bacteria-like creature that digested the same kind of rock as bacteria-like creatures on Earth digested during this, this time period that the rock you found this old bacterium in existed in. Like if you could line up the time periods of evolutionary time and they shared enough chemical characteristics like using DNA, the same kind of metabolism, then maybe you could make this argument um, because it seems sort of unlikely that two different genesis events would produce the same exact sort of coding mechanism. Or you might have something similar to DNA, but not exactly DNA itself. You might have something similar to proteins. You might just have some, you, you could have all of these replacements for what we use that also function, but aren't exactly like what we use that we'd expect from a different genesis. But if it's all the same, we might be able to make that argument. I don't know how you could do it without seeing an alien <laughs> to argue that we are aliens. Um, and also, I'm a, in, in general just a little skeptical of Earth being a panspermia event because life on Earth emerged so fast. Like Mike was saying, you know, over billions of years, there's a likelihood that life could have arrived from Mars. But you don't have a billion years, actually, um, to get life started on Earth because we start seeing evidence for life much like much earlier on in the fossil record than a billion years after formation. So hmm. it, it happened really fast, which, which has caused a lot of geobiologists and geochemists to think that there has to be some drive to life starting on the earth itself. I mean, it certainly could be possible. It's just, it's very or maybe hard to maybe an know. alien trying to accelerate it. <laughs> yeah. Or, or maybe, you know, we were being monitored and as soon as, you know, the earth cooled down enough to not be a, just a ball of angry magma anymore, they're like, all right, now's our chance. We gotta, we gotta <laughs> get started immediately. We've been waiting this long. Let's go. Um, but it, it'd be hard to tell 
without something to compare to, right? Because the real question is, are we like X organism from X planet? And unless we see what X organism from X planet is, we can't really say if we came from there or or if vice versa, if we sent something over there. Yeah. But, but it's still possible at some point in our exploration of Mars that we might actually find real evidence that there was life there and we could compare it, right? Cer- certainly, it's possible. I, <laughs> I am not as hopeful as some um, for, okay. for at least where they're looking on Mars. I would not be the place that the theory for the origin of life that I espouse that you would want to go look for for life but if they're finding evidence of complex organic molecules on mars now um it's hard to put that together to mean life because there are other ways that like mike was just saying lightning um, and these wet dry cycling things they can generate the kind of molecules that we see in life um it it'll be hard but if we do find a martian and we can compare then then we can start to really seriously ask those questions Okay. So we don't have the evidence. Maybe it's unlikely, but it's still possible. Yeah, it's certainly not impossible. So if we had that news next week, Richard, would you start saying that you're a Martian? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, I mean, that would kind of change our identity a little bit, wouldn't it? I mean, in terms of who we think we are, you know, if if it had been introduced from somewhere else. So... Yeah, yeah, you gotta go, you know, take back the homeland. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Okay. Oh, right. <laughs> go know. back it, to Mars. It sort of rejected us. If, yeah, <laughs> no, yeah, it kicked us out. We're like yeah. the Australia of the solar system, you know, just criminals just put put on this continent, this planet that Mars Mars is like, I don't want this life thing. It'll screw <laughs> it'll screw me over eventually. And now Mars is laughing at Earth as we global warming ourselves and like, I, I gave you the humans. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be pretty funny. So I, I'm just kind of curious on the other side of it, like, is it possible that there might have been, you know, some kind of impact on Earth in the past that would take, after life had started here, that would take life from Earth to somewhere else? I mean, is that a possibility? And if so, could it be like outside our solar system? Is that not even possible? <laughs> or Because I wonder about that kind of thing. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a possibility. But the probability drops off quite a bit. Um, And so uh, it depends on, of course, so where you're talking about going from and where you're talking about going to. So coming from Earth, it's harder to get something off of Earth than it is to get something off of Mars because Hmm. Earth has a much thicker atmosphere and a much stronger gravitational pull. Earth is also closer to the sun, which means that the probability of something going off of Earth going outwards into the solar system towards Mars is lower than something coming off the earth and then just spiraling into the sun. Um, and so the, the, the probability lowers because of those factors. And then if you're talking about Earth to Mars, um, you might get like maybe a few hundredths of a percent of the total things that come off of Earth go to Mars. If you want to get stuff all the way out to Saturn, you're talking about maybe a few thousandths of a percent. Um, These are based on calculations uh, done by uh, orbital dynamicists. Uh, And the thing is, the travel time also increases. So if you wanted to send something from Earth out to Saturn by lithopanspermia, you're not sending it on a a direct rocket there. It actually takes you about uh, 10 million years or so to do that journey. And Mm. the timescales for lithopanspermia are really important because if you imagine yourself a happy micro 
microbe and a rock, and all of a sudden you're just stuck in space for 10 million years, <laughs> you might run out of the nutrients that you need to survive. And microbes yeah. are very hardy things, but who knows if you can survive that kinds of uh, cosmic radiation for that long. Now, wow. um, uh, so there is some hope though, that uh, in some of the new systems that we're discovering, these new planetary systems, especially one called TRAPPIST-1, which was uh, which made headlines, I think, last year or maybe two years ago, um, uh, for having seven roughly Earth-sized worlds, okay, all uh, huddled around their host star, which is a small, dim red star. So three of these planets are actually in the quote-unquote habitable zone, even though if they were all to be orbiting our sun, they'd be well within Mercury's orbit. And so in this very tightly packed system, the probability of lithopanspermia working shoots way up. Um, so in our solar system, the typical transit time between uh, Earth and Mars is like 1 to 10 million years. Uh, but recent computer simulations shows that it could take only about 100 years, some, uh, hmm. some transfers uh, just 10 years to hop from planet to planet in the TRAPPIST-1 system just because those planets are all so much closer together. And, uh, and so maybe uh, panspermia is not a very likely scenario for a system like our solar system, but if you go to some of these more exotic solar systems with the planets closer together, um, you can get lithopanspermia happening with, uh, with very much ease. And the kind of star that this system exists around is the most common kind of star that we can see. And so if, if you have mm. this sort of scenario, you could imagine a universe full of solar system-wide biospheres rather than just, you know, an isolated planet. You could have completely, you'd have related life forms on multiple planets within systems all over the place if this is the way it works. So it'd be pretty cool. I'm, I'm rooting for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds like in the, those other systems, they may be having more of a party than we are with just our, like one world with life that we know. I know. Of so we're, far. Are we alone? Are we, are we alone? <laughs> is someone out there? Man, I want to know the answers to these questions, but the universe is so large and it takes so long to get places. Yeah. It's true. We, need, we need that warp drive. <laughs> yeah. 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 Come on, Zephram. Be born already. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if he. Does anybody know when Zephram Cochran was born? I think uh, we're already behind the timeline for Enterprise. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're way behind. And we haven't had World War III yet, so. Well, that's not supposed, supposed to happen, happen in 2026, I think. It okay, is, so, so we had Warp Drive before World War III. I thought, no, I thought World War III was supposed to happen in the 90s, the late 90s. Yeah, yeah. No, the, that was the eugenics war. That's the eugenics war. Oh, right. Well, oh, that's not the same thing as World War III? No. Oh, man. Yeah. Got my World War III is still so in our future. I'm, 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 looking at mem <laughs> I'm looking at memory alpha. It says Zephram Cochran was born sometime in the 2030s. So not okay. yet. But you know, like also there are so many, I think, inconsistencies with things Star Trek has tried to predict. Star Trek takes place in a, a parallel timeline as far as I'm concerned. It Definitely. does not take place in our timeline. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. <laughs> even, even though I will probably, um, you know, end up going to Bozeman, Montana, you know, in April of 2063, just in case. You I'll know. see you there. <laughs> <laughs> There's just going to be this mass arrival of Trekkies, just old Trekkies. I've talked with people about it on Twitter, and they're like, yeah, 45 years from now. Well, we'll see what happens. <laughs> we'll meet up there. Yeah. So awesome. Well, wow, this has been a really 
eye-opening discussion. I, I mean, when I listen to Strange New Worlds, I always learn so much when I hear you guys talk about different topics, but I think <laughs> we're just so kind of ta- taking it in because there's all of this. Because I think that that's one of the things that that Star Trek centers around, that things are possible because of science, but you don't necessarily get to have like an in-depth discussion in Star Trek about some of these scientific possibilities. It tends to be about this future science that's being maybe a little bit based on what we have now, but mostly made up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's nice just always to have that that kind of conversation. Um, so I, well, let me just ask this before, because so I was going to go around for final thoughts, but Mike, Elisa, Richard, did you have things to add before we get to that? I feel like we need to do another episode, dude, because we didn't do any work <laughs> on this one. <laughs> um, we were observing it. I, I, I'm just sitting here listening. I'm like, wow, okay. Um, yeah, it, just to add on to what Justin was saying, uh, for sure. I, 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 yeah, today was the first time um, I actually heard you guys' podcast, and you guys are doing a superb job. I actually, um, just like Justin, I just sit there and listen and absorb what you guys are saying, and it's like, okay, well, it's far more than what I think in a day. So, okay, let's <laughs> let's do this. <laughs> so, I, I, it's very interesting. You definitely uh, won yourself another fan. So, oh, yeah. wow, thanks. <laughs> and and really I mean, just that. yeah, just listening though. I mean, we do want to get questions from people, and and we're happy to answer questions if you if after sitting and absorbing and thinking, you have have questions. Um, I mean, We'd I've asked the to, questions that that, that I yeah. have. I mean, Richard, do you have like <laughs> questions? You're still taking you did it better in. than I did. Yeah, but but, <laughs> so. but 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 also, Mike and Elise, we frequently get um, you know comments and interaction in our Facebook group, the the Babel Conference. So I'll let you know. And listeners, if you have questions about what you have heard today, please feel free to you know drop a comment, and we'll send that along to to Mike and Elise if we see if we can uh, get an answer for you guys. You guys should join the. Are you part of it? Uh, I don't think so. No. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we can start lurking and answering science questions if that's something people (laughs) want. (laughs) Well, I mean, once this this drops, I think it it would be useful. So if you just go to Facebook and just type in Babel, Mm -hmm. uh, you'll find the Babel conference you can ask to come in. They'll just let you right in. So Great. Cool. should do that. Awesome. Yeah. Because I'm sure there will be comments. (laughs) Yeah. You can find Mike and I on the internet as well. Too. Mike's very active. Oh, before on we, yeah, bef- before before we get to that, let me uh, go around for for final thoughts. I think you'd start a little bit, but Richard, your final thoughts. <laughs> My, are you gonna start with me? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, no, no, that's fine. That's fine. Um, it it definitely uh you know thinking in the terms of uh, panspermia as 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 we just all heard, um, that definitely makes me think about the episode a different light. Cause I mean, I, well, before we even started this episode, I, you know, I looked it up and uh, was trying to figure it out on my own on um, what this is. And I mean, in simpler terms, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of something I've already thought about, but at the same time, I mean, thinking about the science of it and then hearing you guys talk about how passionate you guys are about, uh, well, I don't know how much passion there is. I'm sure there's someone far more passionate than that, but like still, it's just it's just amazing on um, on the science there is that um, you know how 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 many people have actually thought about this and actually are still thinking about this. So it's very it definitely changes my my perception of the uh, of the episode, and um, for sure uh, will make me think about it in a different light next time I see it again. So for sure, yeah, excellent. Yeah, and I just want to mention like it seemed like 
you know, Mike, whenever I would have a question, it's like, oh, somebody's already done some simulations on that. I'm like, really? Somebody spent like some time to figure out if that was possible and like all the precision. It's just incredible, right? But I know like in science, there are people that are getting into these like little micro niches of things for their career. That's so true. (laughs) But I'm just impressed. Like whatever there was a question, it was like, oh yeah, somebody did a, a... study of that and simulations and it's this percentage or this possibility it's like wow um (laughs) anyway mike your final thoughts on what we've talked about here today yeah well i really enjoyed rewatching the chase i thought it was a really fun episode something that we maybe just cursorily touched upon uh was the that artifact that professor galen gave to picard and uh, I think that really sums up the episode for me, the fact that um, this, this Curlin civilization had this belief that we are all uh, comprised of many different smaller individuals within us. Um, and so that speaks to so many different things uh, in me. First of all, of course, the obvious that Captain Picard stumbled upon himself, that he has lots of different voices inside of him telling him to pursue different careers and different paths with his life, but also the realization that we are all networked together, that we all have a little bit of each other in us. Uh, And so, you know, you and I share DNA. We both share DNA with that flower out the window, and we all share DNA with the microbes that are in our guts, that inhabit our stomachs. And uh, on, on the Star Trek level too, that we uh, that we find out through the chase that we share this common ancestry with some of our closest allies and some of our most hated enemies. And uh, to realize that there is a lot that binds us together, that makes us very similar, that we share, that we can try to celebrate and understand together. Um, that's a very Star Trek message uh, that I that I took away from from the chase. And uh, so I enjoyed coming here and talking about it with you guys. Uh, it, was, it was certainly a pleasure um, to dissect the scientific background behind this very brilliant episode. Excellent. Yeah. And, and when I was watching The Chase this time, I also thought that that artifact, which has like the individuals within the whole, was foreshadowing what would happen at the end where they find that they're different individuals that are part of the same whole. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, it's a nice image. Uh, excellent. So Elise, your final thoughts? Wow, I'm just, I'm trying to think of anything beyond what has already been said. It's a very good episode. At least I personally have been grappling with the idea of having many different interests and having to choose a path to go down and live with the consequences of missing out on one thing to get the other. And so it's a very relatable struggle that Picard is dealing with there. And um, but then also on the scientific side, this is obviously something that Mike and I think about <laughs> a lot. Um, it, yes, it's clear this isn't the first time <laughs> yeah, you've thought about right. this. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, we'll go out and like get food and just start talking about this kind of stuff. So uh, it, it's Star Trek is so fun because you can take it to be whatever you want it to be in, in that it can, you can focus on the emotional journeys of the characters, you can focus on the science, you can focus on the, the universe and the world building. And um, perhaps thinking about this episode from sort of both sides today has sort of, I don't know, it's a good reminder that fans don't have to come at Star Trek from any particular angle. You can enjoy it for whatever you enjoy it for, whether it's the world building or the the plot, um, what they follow up on, what they don't, if it's the characters or the science like it is for me and Mike in a lot of ways. Um, It's all all in there. So I don't know, that's sort of, I guess, what I got out of this discussion, if not what I got out of the episode. Excellent. Well... For my own final thoughts, 
I mean, I think everyone has kind of already said it already. It's a great episode. I love that it, you know, that, that you guys came to us with this idea and I was like, oh, I wonder how that'll go. But I mean, there's so much that I was like learning and had questions about and thinking about. And, and I think our listeners hopefully will have enjoyed the discussion and, and, and learned a lot. I mean, and also just thinking about the possibility, whether we'll ever know if it's happened that life is here on earth the way it is, maybe because it came from Mars or from somewhere else is just it kind of blows my mind to think that, mm-hmm. that that's even possible or that maybe we wouldn't even be here without something like that. Um, but it also helps you to kind of think on a greater scale because in this episode, you know, it's talking about something from four billion years ago that there's this advanced civilization that didn't find anyone out there and they wanted to kind of leave a, a legacy, which is kind of an amazing idea that gets maybe glossed over a bit in the end because it's toward the end, but it's incredible. And I think outside of in all good things, when, um, when Q takes Picard to kind of the primordial goo of, of the earth, it's, you know, it's the, the, uh, reference to the past. That's the most mind blowing, I think. So anyway, I've, I've enjoyed it a lot and, and really enjoyed the discussion that we had. So, um, Mike, where can people find you online? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter. My handle is at MikeY, M-I-Q-U-A-I. And I'm always tweeting about cool science and Star Trek things. And uh, I'll tweet out uh, notices for new episodes of Strange New Worlds there. You should also check out Strange New Worlds. We're on SoundCloud. That's where we're hosted. But you can also find us on Apple Podcasts and Google Play Music. Excellent. I have to ask, because I've I've thought about this, you're your Twitter username, is there some significance to that? Yeah, uh, basically it's a childhood nickname um, before when my brother was a baby, before he could pronounce Michael correctly, he would call me Mike Y. So, oh. Yeah, that's, that's that's where it comes from. That's cute. <laughs> and and uh, Elise, where can people find you online? Um, I'm also on Twitter. I'm trying to get better at it. So if I get tweeted at, I'll try to, I'll do my best response. It's at um, E-M-Cutsy, C-U-T-T-S-Y. Uh, so it's just cuts with two T's and a Y at the end. Um, and yeah, I'll try to respond there as well. And, um, I, I'll be lurking in this Babel group as well. So looking, looking forward to hearing back from you guys. I, <laughs> I muted myself for a second to just go and join that real quick. So the request oh, has excellent. already been sent into the admins. All right. <laughs> Look forward to, to seeing you there. Yeah. Mike and Elise, thanks so much for, for being guests and, you know, taking the time today to, so talk with us about Star Trek The Next Generation and panspermia, which I think we've all learned so much more about. We really appreciate you coming by to be on the show today. Yep. Thank you oh, so much for you. letting us talk about this stuff. It's, it's so fun. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's, it's a great time. Great time. All right, listeners, so a preview of next week's episode. So we will have as a guest John Krikorian from the Trek Profiles podcast, and he'll be talking with us about Romulans in the third season episodes The Enemy and The Defector. So go ahead and rewatch those, and I think we're going to have a great discussion with him next week. Well, it's been so much fun talking about the chase and panspermia, but that isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on the network. Here's what you might have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.fm, Meta Treks. You can see Gene Roddenberry playing with the idea of what we could become given our full potential. And the aliens that have achieved that, looking down and, and kind of criticizing or examining or evaluating 
humanity from a moral standpoint, almost like Q does in, in putting humanity on trial. There's a sense in which humanity is being judged by these morally superior aliens that are genuinely pacifists. Or in the case of Q, genuinely narcissistic. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. He's not trying to, to be a Starfleet officer. He doesn't care about doing that in the context of, well, because I want to prove that I'm a Starfleet officer. But I think that, and again, this is what perhaps in, in hindsight, after the fact, he starts to realize that who he is aligns itself or can align itself with what Starfleet stands for. To the journey! I was wondering why they didn't do a mind meld at the end of the, the episode. Why, why would they do that? Because Tressa has 90 some odd years, 94, 96 years of life experience and Tuvok is a Vulcan so he can mind meld. Why wouldn't he do that? Because there's no reason to do that. You're just going around mind melding with people willy nilly just because they're old and you want their knowledge. Is that what you're doing? Yeah, it's like space genealogy. Dude, boundaries. Melodic treks. And, uh, you know, I talked to the producers when I first did the show and the first thing they had me do was take a combination of the da 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 you know, the Sandy Courage wonderful horn theme and um, Jerry's da 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 you know, his theme for the first movie and, and make a theme out of those and combine them. So I did it electronically and they said, good enough. And I said, I look, this is not my specialty. And they said, never mind, you got it. So 18 years later, you know, that was it. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star reading and a written review. That helps others to find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways you can do that. The best place to join the in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type in Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Earl Grey. That will come right to us, and we might read your email on the show. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com trek.fm. So Richard, where can people contact you when you're not arm wrestling with a Klingon? I don't know. That last guy gave me a uh, gave me a workout. <laughs> okay, and just for listeners, I know we didn't talk about that, but it is in the chase. You remember there's the the Klingon with with Data, and they have like this kind of arm wrestling thing. Yeah, more, more like cranial like smashing. <laughs> well, after that, he smashes his head, but yeah. they ha- he has this thing where he puts up his arms, and Data puts yep. up his arms. And he's like, <laughs> so, I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, yeah, you're good. You're good. So um, yeah, you guys can find me uh, um, also on the Babel Conference. I pop in here and there. Um, and, uh, I, I'm sure you, as you just heard from Elise, I'm also on Twitter as well. My handle's X Ransom and I barely, uh, frequent that one too, but I'm trying, trying, trying. <laughs> so, you can do it, Richard. You can do it. I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> so Justin, where can people contact you when you're not on a, uh, on an archeological expedition with Professor Caleb? 
Well, you know, if I was on that last one with him, I'd be dead. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'll you, turn him down next time. You join him on the shuttlecraft. <laughs> <laughs> So um, I'm at TrekFan4747 on Twitter, where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek. By the time this episode comes out, I will be on my season six rewatch. Yes. I know it's taken me like two months to get through season five with everything I have, but I'm getting there. (laughs) And you can also find me hanging around the Babel Conference on Facebook. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, The Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take this opportunity to recognize our current associate producers, Norman Lau, Justin Ozer, Michael Huter, and Thomas Appel. Thank you for supporting the Trek FM, and as always, Earl Grey. So join us next time for another cup of Earl Grey. Today is a good day to die! Are we all really Martians? <laughs>